tales of horror. As the sleepless hours tick past, brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Episode 11 of the No Sleep Podcast. I'm David Cummings, and now it's dark. We hope every one of our listeners enjoyed a festive and spooky Halloween. I want to publicly thank and commend the No Sleep Podcast team for their stellar work for our Halloween extravaganzas. When you add up the Season Pass Halloween bonus episode with our traditional full-length Halloween show and the Halloween live stream we did on YouTube, we put out nine hours of Halloween content this year. That's a lot of work by a lot of talented and dedicated people. We hope you all enjoyed it. And now that the month of Halloween horror is over, we can go back to our normal routine of providing you weekly doses of, of, well, horror So why don't we do just that? Now, let's begin our journey down this lost highway. In our first tale, we find ourselves submerged in darkness, in the ocean, in terror. The skies have blackened and creatures are rising from the sea. And the only way to pierce the darkness is with light. But in this tale, shared with us by author J.W. Wright, illuminating the situation requires a deadly swim. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement and Kyle Akers. So look towards the horizon and don't gaze down into the depths. Take a deep breath. Don't inhale. Otherwise, you might smell the brine. The lighthouse should be right on that island over there. I looked around, knowing full well that it was pointless in this complete lack of light. I'm going to toss you into the water. When you hit the surface, don't think about it. Just start swimming. I nodded, even though I knew he couldn't see. I've always been a good swimmer. Mom always said that I'd make the Olympics one day. My parents spent a lot of money on swimming lessons, after all. I felt like I owed it to them to at least be good at something. And I knew I had to make it. I was the only one who could. Eric didn't waste any time. He lifted me up and threw me over the side of the boat we were on. I'd have never jumped into the water on my own. We both knew that. I hit the water hard. I made sure to take a nice deep breath right before I hit the surface. I felt myself going under the cold water sending a shock through my whole body, causing me to expel some of the air I held in my lungs. I strained. It was ice cold. But I couldn't think about that now. I raced for air, 
the black void around me threatening to swallow me up every second. I breached the surface. I listened in the darkness. The only sound I heard was the crashing of the waves. This was it. I was alone now. I always fancied the breaststroke. I found it to be the quietest of all the strokes. If I did it right, it didn't make any sound at all. I've always called it the ninja stroke. I had to be quiet. Ever since the sky went black, the things that used to be at the bottom of the ocean all started coming to the top. And with a lot more room and a lot more food to eat, they got a lot bigger. And I say coming to the top because Dad told me they didn't all swim. He said there were some things down there that walked just like us. Walked on the bottom of the ocean floor. And they walked right out onto the land. Killed a bunch of people. Almost everyone I knew. They had these hard shells that the bullets didn't work. At least, that's what my dad had kept screaming. He was a fisherman, always used to being at sea. I guess they smelled it, smelled the sea on him and knew he didn't belong. He didn't put up much of a fight. There were too many of them. My brother, Eric, he's the one who saved me, picked me up and carried me, carried me into our hiding spot. We hid until we ran out of food, until we absolutely had to move. And then we ventured out to Dad's boat at the dock. You may think we're foolish to come out here in a boat, and you're right. That's why Eric threw me overboard. He told me I had to go to the lighthouse and turn on the generator, that I would turn the light on. These creatures, they don't like the light. And since the sun doesn't shine in the sky anymore, we figured that lighthouse was the brightest light around. And the light rotates around so it will keep me safe from all sides. Eric told me that if I turned the light on, I'd finally be safe. But I just had to make it there. Eric knew when he threw me off the boat, he'd never see me again. He knew the boat was a sitting target, a decoy. He jammed the throttle to full as soon as he threw me overboard. He couldn't see where he was going, but it didn't matter. No matter where he went, he'd still end up in Davy Jones's locker. I heard it in the distance. The boat cracking and splintering as it was dragged under the waves. I thought I heard a scream, but I hoped it was just my imagination. It's hard not to imagine things in the darkness. When you're swimming in a pitch black sea with a black sky, you start to lose your sense of direction. All sense of your own self is just gone. You exist in nothingness. Your destination exists in nothingness. With each passing stroke, you wince as you just swear you feel something brushing your foot. Perhaps it's just some bubbles or sea foam, maybe a piece of seaweed, but maybe it's not. I made my way in the general direction that Eric told me to go. I felt like it was the right way. He told me the waves would be coming from behind me, and well, that's where they were coming from. 
The waves crashed louder and louder as I made my way towards what I could only pray was the shore of the small island that contained the lighthouse. I knew from the increasing volume and rocks that I was arriving at least at some type of landmass. As I rushed to exit the water, I scraped my leg on a piece of jagged rock. Son of a bitch. That's what my dad would have said too, if he sustained the same injury. I felt my leg. It was wet, of course, but it felt different from just the salty ocean water. It felt like blood. Oh God, not now. You see, just like our beloved sharks of the deep, these creatures, though mostly blind, have an exceptional sense of smell. They can smell a drop of blood up to five miles away. And I didn't know how many of these things were in five miles, but I knew it was a lot. I bounded up the shore, stumbling and sloshing as I trudged through the sand. I felt the white, powdery substance sticking to my clothes and scraping against my skin as I made my way forward. I felt around in the darkness, searching for any kind of hint of a lighthouse. After a few moments of doing so, I felt a man-made path under my feet. A good sign. Now I just needed to follow it away from the water and hopefully that would get me to where I needed to go. A few dreadful minutes passed as I cautiously but briskly made my way up the path. My foot knocked into what felt like a set of stairs. I jammed my toe and wanted to cry out, but I already had a trail of blood. I didn't need a sound giving away my location as well. I reached out and felt a handrail. I walked up the stairs as fast as I could go, feeling in front of me for a door. My hands suddenly smacked right into what felt like a solid piece of wood. I felt around. Fumbling in the darkness, I found a doorknob. I went to turn it and... Locked. Of course. And I didn't have a key. So what am I supposed to do now? I started to make my way around to the other side of the stairs, feeling for some sort of a window. Maybe I could break it and get in. I started to reach out when I suddenly stopped. I noticed something particularly eerie about the moment I was experiencing right then. The waves had stopped. The sound all around me had completely stopped. And suddenly, the smell of brine was overpowering. I felt the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. I knew something was very wrong. I decided to stand very still. Maybe if I tried to be quiet and slow my breathing... It would go away. Slowly, miraculously, the sounds of the sea resumed. Things seemed to be going back to normal. I breathed a sigh of relief and began to make my way back around the lighthouse. I was determined to find a way in. I reached my hand out in the darkness and felt something squishy. Something undoubtedly fishy. My heart stopped. A tentacle reached out and wrapped around my neck. It began to squeeze. 
my world was already black began to get even blacker as I fought for air. When you begin to mistrust your loved one, it can be tough, especially when their unreliability may be rooted in a struggle they're working hard to overcome. Nonetheless, it's not a nice feeling when you're forced to question your partner. But in this tale, shared with us by author Jeffrey Walker, we learn that sometimes it's worth believing in even the most unbelievable stories. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Peter Lewis, and Graham Rowett. So scope out the yard, pay attention to the sightings, the rumors, listen to the call of the Nocturne. I had no idea how to respond at first. I just stood there, half-paralyzed, staring into my husband's eyes. I was waiting for him to crack a smile, to start giggling and say he was only joking. But his expression was brutally serious, which served only to deepen the silence between us. There was no hint of that boyish mischief I usually see at the corner of his eyes when he's pulling my leg. He just gazed at me indifferently as he stepped into his sweatpants. And then, as if he thought I hadn't heard him the first time, he said it again. There were people in the backyard last night, and when I looked at them, they hid behind the trees. Are you serious? Even as I asked this, it became clear that he wasn't messing around. Yeah. He was frustrated that I dared to doubt his sincerity. Okay, well, who do you think they were? Neighborhood kids having fun? I don't know. They didn't look like kids, though. They were too tall. Slowly getting to his feet, he stood for a minute, gazing vacantly out at our backyard, a wide lot dotted with aspens and dying pines. He looked pale, and there was a distant graveness in his words. How many were there? I tried hard to mask the unsteady cadence of my words, but my trepidation shone through. Five, six, maybe. And when did this happen? He scratched his head and squinted. Three in the morning, somewhere around there. I woke up and something told me I had to look out the window. Just had a, a weird feeling, you know? So you looked out there and then what? They were just standing out there on the lawn, back along the fence. And I don't know how they noticed me. I I didn't turn a light on or make any noise. But the second I lifted my head to the window, they, they slipped behind the trees. 
He lifted one of his long, wiry arms and pointed out towards the perimeter of our yard. I didn't know what to think. I couldn't imagine why anyone would want to hang out in our backyard in the middle of the night. We certainly didn't have anything worth stealing. But at the same time, Mason was so pragmatic, so logical. It wasn't like him to make up stories. I couldn't think of a single reason he'd suggest something so... bizarre. Well, that's not completely true. I could think of one reason, but I didn't want to admit it to myself. I hated what it suggested about the state of our relationship. What has happened to us? The truth is, Mason was addicted to meth before we met. I've only ever known him sober, but he's told me stories. He's talked about being strung out for days without sleep, about getting paranoid and seeing shadow people out of the corner of his eye. He said they were like indiscernible figures he'd glimpse in the periphery. And if he tried to look straight at them, they'd dissolve or slip behind a corner. But he was a different person then. For as long as I've known him, he's been reliable, practical, clear-headed. He's always been there for me. He's always been honest. It's an uncanny feeling when someone you rely on makes a claim like that. It makes you wonder if they're losing it. It makes you wonder if you could too. Hey, babe. Remember that stuff you would tell me about when you were using? About how you'd see things? Grabbing one of his hands, I held it in mine. He jerked his hand away and shot me a scathing look. I'm not using, Rachel. I'm just... He stomped across the kitchen and braced himself above the sink, his head hanging low. It's been six years. I felt terrible. He looked so vulnerable, so defeated. I knew how ashamed he was of his using years, and that there was nothing he hated more than having his integrity questioned. Come here, I'm sorry. Let's just drop it. Whoever it was back there, I'm sure they won't come back. I held him close, trying my best to both assure him and convince myself. But I couldn't drop it. Not really. There was something about the look in Mason's eyes when he told me about the people in the backyard that was so unsettling. I became nauseated thinking about it. I couldn't let it go, even as I went about my day, chatting with friends, buying groceries, grading papers. The episode lingered in my head like the remnants of a bad dream I couldn't make sense of. Sometime in the late afternoon, I finally found some peace from the incident. I was propped up on the couch rereading a tattered old Philip Roth paperback, sipping occasionally on a lukewarm cup of coffee. Suddenly, I became aware of a faint smell permeating the air of our small living room. The stench may not have been pungent, but it was still unpleasant. It carried a light aroma of rotting meat like a side of beef that was starting to turn. Oof. <sighs> I rose with a stretch and opened the windows. Then I set about digging through the fridge in the pantry, searching for the source of the smell. But I couldn't find anything in our kitchen that was even remotely expired. In fact, the longer I spent searching through the kitchen, 
The surer I became that the smell wasn't even originating from there. The scent had an odd property to it, something indistinguishable. It almost seemed to have no origin or source at all, as if it were the atmosphere itself that was rotting. Eventually, I gave up on my search and ran a hot bath. I spent the next hour soaking in silence, trying to rid my mind of the day's events. Every few seconds, a drop would fall from the faucet and hit the surface of the water with a satisfying plop. I focused on each little drop, closing the rest of the world out of my head. I meditated on the noise until the water got cold. By the time I got out of the bath, the stench was gone, but that did little to put me at ease. When night fell, Mason and I went about our evening routines independently of each other. There was a slight tension lingering between us. I held on to my concerned skepticism, and he retained his frustrated resentment. We didn't speak anymore about what had happened, but it had left its mark. The foundation of our trust was already fractured, and the episode exacerbated the uncertainty that was growing between us. It was nearing midnight when we crawled into bed next to each other, both feeling slightly foolish and emotionally exhausted. I kissed him gently, and as I drifted off, I found comfort in my hope that tomorrow would be a better day. Something moved through the darkness. It formed complex geometric patterns and whispered unintelligible secrets. It had always been in this place. I jolted awake, taking a few desperate seconds to shake the image out of my mind. As my eyes adjusted, I scanned the silent, still darkness. It was only a dream. <sighs> my arm reached across the mattress, seeking the warm comfort of Mason's sleeping body. But my fingers only found a mess of wrinkled sheets. I lifted my head from the pillow and could barely make out a huddled form crouching in the darkness beneath the window. Babe? Shh, they're back. My skin felt hot and my pulse was thumping wildly in my temples. I slipped out of bed quietly and joined him below the window. Look. My eyelids were squeezed shut. I didn't want to see what was out there, even if it was nothing at all. Look. I slowly opened my eyes and scanned the darkness. A gentle breeze lifted the moonlit trees. Otherwise, the yard appeared empty. I kept my eyes fixed in frightened anticipation. And just before I was about to rise and get back into bed, I saw a faint glimmer... For a brief second, something reflected the moonlight with an eerie glow, like the eyes of a house cat in a dark room. See? What the hell? I rose in a haze of adrenaline, grabbed a lantern and a baseball bat, and stormed out into the yard. Halfway across the lawn and gaining momentum, I began belting out threats, doing my best to hide the fear in my voice. What the fuck is going on? Who are you people? What are you doing out here? 
I set the lantern down along the row of trees near the edge of our property and cocked the bat above my shoulder, ready to strike. As I weaved back and forth in front of the light, my trembling figure cast uncanny shadows across the branches. I continued to shout, my voice cracking with each syllable. I swear to God I'm going to hit you with this bat if you don't get the hell out of here. After thoroughly searching the yard, I realized I was alone. The glimmer had been nothing more than a wet leaf or the eye of a curious raccoon, which had no doubt taken flight upon seeing my stampeding approach. Slightly embarrassed, I gathered the lantern and returned to the house, cursing my cowardly husband under my breath as I strode across the lawn. Once inside, I returned to bed without another word. The next day, I flew to Minneapolis to see my mother. I didn't like the idea of leaving Mason at the house alone, but the doctors had told me that my mother's time was quickly approaching, and I couldn't bring myself to take the risk of postponing my visit. I sat in a cramped but otherwise pleasant room with my mother, who, despite her sickness, was every bit as cheery and talkative as she had been in my youth. She asked me when I was going to graduate from school, and if I was going to get married. I told her I'd long since graduated and was now teaching school, and that I was happily married to someone I loved very much. She smiled gleefully and ate a spoonful of jello. Then, after a few minutes of silence, she asked me the same two questions over again. I wasn't proud of the fact that my siblings and I had put her in a nursing home, but the fact remained that she needed a level of care that none of us were able to provide. Visiting her in that drab and sterile facility was never a joyous affair. But in a weird way, it always felt like coming home. It reminded me of the feeling I got in college when I made the trip home for Thanksgiving weekend. It was something I only did out of obligation. But then when it had come and gone, I felt sad that it was over. I missed the nurturing comfort that her presence gave me. In the cool afternoon air, I helped her into her wheelchair and pushed her through the nursing home's garden. I knew somehow that it was the last time I would see her. I wished I wasn't so preoccupied with Mason and everything going on at home. I tried to just be present with her, tried as hard as I could to hold on to that little bit of solace we shared. After the sun began to set, I squeezed her hand and told her I had to leave. She smiled because she didn't understand. When I got home, Mason had a quiet resolve about him, like he was satisfied with himself or had some exciting news to share. A faint smile hung around the corners of his lips, but nevertheless, he remained silent. As we sat down to eat dinner... He placed his hands in his lap and poised himself like he was ready to make a big announcement. I sat up stiff in my chair, gazing at him cynically. I I know what they want. He looked at me with big eyes. He was beaming with pride. It was disturbing. You mean the people you saw? Yes, I talked to them while you were gone. Well, talk isn't the right word. They don't really talk. They don't have to. But anyway, they told me what they want. 
A shiver ran down my spine and I slowly rose from my chair. My heart was thumping. And what do they want? I began slowly backing away from him. They want to join us. They want to become part of us. They've been waiting so, so long for this. My eyes began to water. I wanted to scream. What was happening to him? I'm just gonna go get some help. My voice was barely audible, and it sounded like it was coming from somewhere far off. Nothing in life had prepared me for this. Tears were streaking my cheeks when I arrived at our neighbor's house. Aside from being a kind, gentle old man, Roy was also a retired psychiatrist. I figured if anyone could help us, short of checking Mason into the psych ward, it would be Roy. His face was gaunt when he answered the door, and an air of concern clung to his brow. I tried to hold back my hysterics as I explained the situation. Roy just stood patiently and listened, his thick white head of hair sitting in tufts above his calming face. When I finished speaking, he laid a meaty hand on my shoulder and told me that everything would be okay. A rush of gratitude flowed through me, yielding even more tears. I waited on the stoop as he threw on a tattered old plaid flannel, and then he walked with me back to our house. My breath shone in the cold night air and the wide gibbous moon shed a peculiar glow on our path. When we reached the house, the bedroom lamp shined through the blinds like a beacon. We're coming, Mason. You're going to be okay. Roy waited in the foyer while I went into the bedroom to retrieve Mason. I took slow, deliberate steps, worried that I'd startle him if I approached too quickly. But when I got into our room, it was empty. Mason's keys and cell phone sat on the nightstand, illuminated by the lambent glow of the desk lamp. My heart began to race as I combed the other rooms of the house, panic setting in deeper as I found each one vacant. Roy grabbed a flashlight and followed me into the yard where I continued to search. But there was no sign of Mason. When we walked back into the house, I was bombarded. The rotten stench had returned, now offensively pungent, and it had grown more putrid as well. The rancid odor was now accompanied by something chemical, like charcoal or arsenic. Ugh, do you smell that? Roy lifted his nose to the air and took in a series of deep breaths. Maybe. What is it? <sighs> something rotten! I headed out back to the porch for some fresh air. When an hour had gone by and there was still no sign of Mason, I called 911. I seethed with frustration as the dispatcher told me that they couldn't do anything until he'd been gone for at least 24 hours. Despite my insistence that he was an at-risk individual, they said the best they could do was to send out a patrol car to take a report the next day. Roy waited graciously sipping a cup of tea at the kitchen table and assuring me that Mason would return home safe. When the early morning hours set in and dawn began to approach, I told him that he should go home and get some rest. He reluctantly agreed, but made me promise that I'd call him when Mason got home. 
On his way out, he paused on the stoop and looked back at me. Don't worry too much, Rachel. Mason's a smart guy. He won't let them hurt him. I nodded and thanked him before closing the door. It wasn't until I crawled into bed a few minutes later, nearly collapsing with fatigue, that I realized what he'd said. I sprung upright in bed. He won't let them hurt him. What the hell was that supposed to mean? He won't let who hurt him? I felt like the framework of my reality was disintegrating beneath me. The ground on which I used to feel so solid, so grounded, had disappeared. Fortunately, the only thing stronger than my insanity was my exhaustion. And before I could spin too far out of control, I slipped into the comforting hands of sleep. The piercing mid-morning sun radiated through the room, and I was vaguely aware that my phone was ringing. I drew my first conscious breath and was immediately hit with the stench. A storm of death and chemicals invaded my nostrils and sat burning in my sinuses. I reached for my phone, hoping to hear Mason's voice come through the speaker, hoping just to hear that he was safe somewhere. But I was surprised to hear the deadpan voice of someone calling themselves a medical staff member come through the line. The clinical voice told me that it was unexpected, that her condition had worsened in the night. The clinical voice told me they had done all they could. And then the clinical voice asked me when I could come in. I lay there, trying to reconcile the fact that a complete stranger had just told me that my mother was dead, but I couldn't. I'll have to call you back. The day was cold and bright. I wrapped my arms around myself and shivered as I walked back over to Roy's house, under the head-splitting glare of the sun. My body felt stiff and achy, like I had a flu coming on. Pinpricks jabbed at my skin. Even my hair follicles hurt. When Roy didn't answer after the fifth time knocking, I peered in through his bay window. I don't know what I was expecting to see, but I didn't find it. The house was undisturbed and appeared empty. I gritted my teeth and lay my forehead against the window. What's happening to me? The afternoon slipped by in a haze. I lay in bed staring at the ceiling, immersed in the putrid odor. It burned deep into my nostrils until I could no longer even detect it. I wondered if that was what it felt like to die. By the time the police officer arrived to fill out the missing persons report, an indifferent numbness had eased itself over me. It wasn't that I didn't want Mason to come home that I somehow knew it was futile to hope he would. A sense of finality loomed in the air, like a great cosmic door had been closed. My fragile little life had been swept away, and this strange new reality had taken its place. I slipped in and out of consciousness as the light was pulled from the room. In my mind, 
I was shown vibrant colors, deep fluorescent hues that could never be seen with the naked eye. The colors danced and formed shapes. Complex, blooming patterns flashed through my mind and descended infinitely upon themselves. The shapes whispered to me. They told me secrets about the world that no man was allowed to know. When I awoke, the room was blanketed in darkness. Only the pale glow of the moon added texture to my surroundings. I could hear a distant buzzing, like a swarm of insects all vibrating to the tune of their shared hive mind. But when I really focused on the noise, I could hear something deeper, something beyond the monotonous hum. There were words in it, strings of incoherent commands that seeped effortlessly into my brain. As if in a trance, I swung my legs over the side of the bed and got slowly to my feet. The buzzing voices drew me towards the moonlit window. Behold, the voices said from somewhere deep inside my mind. And there they were. Mason, Roy, and my mother emerged from the shadows at the edge of the yard. Beyond them I could see others. Their pale, wrinkled bodies tottered naked through the weeds. Flaps of skin sagged from their joints like an ill-fitting suit. Slowly, they all turned to face me. I could see a pale glow emitting from their eyes. A glimmering reflection of the moon that contrasted their otherwise emotionless features. The buzzing continued, raising in frequency until it sounded like a high-pitched whine. The penetrating stare of glowing eyes saturated my vision. And then their eyes began to lift. They raised their flabby arms at their sides. A gaping, predatory mouth was opening in the stars above. The giant circular boundary spread through the sky. Its jagged edges like the event horizon of a black hole. Constellations disappeared into the ever-widening maw. And the pale, naked bodies... Their hymnal chant intensifying, welcome the arrival of their ravenous god. There are a lot of subjects we tackle in stories which aren't great. One thing that especially isn't great is being dead. Waking up to find you've died is a real kick in the teeth. But that's the situation facing our heroine. And in this tale, shared with us by author D.M. Holder, we discover that death is only the beginning of the terror. Performing this tale are Erica Sanderson, Kristen DiMacurio, Andy Cresswell, Sarah Thomas, Peter Lewis, Nicole Goodnight, Atticus Jackson, and Nicole Doolin. So take a trip into the forest beyond the veil, 
confront the creatures that dwell within. Experience the afterlife of Daphne Green. I thought being dead would be different. I had vague ideas of what the afterlife would be like. Possibly oblivion, which was okay in my book. Or maybe I'd go to a land of eternal sunshine and sparkling youth where there would be peace, love and happiness all the live long day. Or maybe I'd dissolve into pure energy and exist as part of all that is. Or maybe I'd scatter and parts of me would be in everything, in every blade of grass and grain of sand. As it turned out, none of these things were the reality that I experienced after I died. My name is Daphne Green, and this is the story of my afterlife. The transition between life and death was also different than what I expected. It wasn't like going to sleep in one place and waking up in another. It was more like slowing down, until each moment stretched out to eternity. I felt heavy, anchored to the earth, pressed down. There was a stillness then, like a long pause, and then everything started rushing towards me faster and faster, and I felt the air burning. Light exploding and a roaring sound filled my ears. This continued for an eon, or maybe just for the blink of an eye, during which I had no sense of place or time or self. I saw glimpses of everything that was, everything that could be, and glimpses of darkness, and beyond it, something much more terrifying. I drifted in a blank sea of nothingness, until time and place slowly returned to me. I knew with absolute certainty that I was dead, but I still had physical form. The physical form of my twenty-something self, although my death had happened much, much later. I had eyes that could see, ears that could hear, and a nose that could smell. I assumed touch and taste were as I remembered as well. My senses first detected darkness. The darkness had weight, and it enveloped me completely so that I struggled to breathe and was on the verge of hyperventilating. I forced myself to take deep, slower breaths. I realized that my nails were pressing into the flesh of my palms as I clenched my hands into fists. I slowly relaxed my fists and stretched out my fingers. I looked around, and all I could see at first was inky black, deep and dark. Soon the darkness separated and I could see the shapes of twisted trees that soared so high up that I couldn't see the tops. I saw dark, slimy moss hanging from gnarled limbs. The moss glimmered with green phosphorence and swayed gently like a moth-eaten curtain. A smell of dank rot cloyed at my nose and settled like a clammy film on my skin. The smell was strong and sweet. A mix of rotting vegetation, cotton candy and decaying flesh. I heard a rustling sound coming from the woods, a sound like a whisper, like dry leaves falling, like bones rubbing together, and I thought I saw a figure standing near a tree staring at me in the dark. I shivered, feeling cold. I looked again, and the figure was gone. Feeling the need to find safety and shelter, I started walking, skirting the edges of what looked to be a very large forest. I glanced towards the trees, trying to peer into the dark depths, because in spite of the icy chill that was spreading over me, I was also intrigued and felt a strange yearning to move closer, to enter the forest and explore. Snap out of it. 
I realized that my feet were leading me closer to the woods. I turned and put the trees at my back and started walking in the opposite direction. As I walked, my head was full of questions. Where was I? What was this place? And what was that forest? Were there people here? I hadn't seen any sign of another human being since my arrival in this place. I felt very alone. What if there were no other people here? My feet made a crunching sound as I walked, and peering closer I could see that small bones littered the ground. Probably animal bones, I thought. I looked back over my shoulder and then stopped moving. I had no sense of time, but I could swear that I'd been walking for at least 30 minutes. The forest behind me was no farther away than when I'd started. Turning back around, I saw that instead of endless nothingness in front of me, now there was a group of cottages in the distance. They looked a bit run down and the light shining from the windows wasn't exactly welcoming. But what other options did I have? At least there should be someone there who I could talk to, right? Maybe someone who could help me find out where I needed to go. As I neared the cottages, I could see weak green light filtering from a window of the one nearest to me and I headed towards it. I knocked on the wooden door and waited. I heard sounds inside and then the door opened and a woman stood in the doorway. Without a word, she led me into the cottage and waved a hand at a couch in front of the fireplace. I sat and looked around. An old man and a teenage girl were playing cards at a table and a man who looked to be in his forties was sitting on a chair nearby with an array of weapons laid out before him. He was busy sharpening a wickedly curved knife. I could hear sound from elsewhere in the cottage and assumed more people were about. The old man looked over at me and winked. You've arrived just in time, darling. Liana here. He nodded at the woman who had let me in. Was just getting ready to take all of the new arrivals on a little field trip. The teenager giggled and rolled her eyes and the man with the weapons looked up grimly. I shivered and rubbed my hands on my arms, looking around the cottage, which, despite being a bit worn and tired, was still clean and cosy and as welcoming as a cottage could be in this strange place. When will the sun come up? Liana looked at me. The sun never comes up. This is it. Eternal dark. My face must have shown my horror because Liana laughed wryly. <laughs> it's not that bad. We're used to it up here. The teenager stood up and came over to me. She looked like she'd been transplanted from the 1980s, complete with frosted blonde teased hair, bright blue eyeshadow, and a white romper with neon pink squiggles all over. My name is Vicky. It's totally a drag that I have to tell you this, but... I'm dead. I know. Vicky slumped away dejected, and I turned back to Liana. Where am I? What is this place? Liana was kneeling half in and half out of the closet. She began pulling coats, boots, knives, belts and harnesses out. This is the space in between. In between your previous life and where you're going next. The space in between? You mean like purgatory? No, not purgatory. Though I suppose some would see it that way. This is a way stop. Well, for some. For others, it's more than that. It's like a home. <laughs> this doesn't look like any kind of home I'd want to stay in. The old man looked sharply at me. No offence, but the sooner I can move on, the better. This place is creepy and dark, and that forest... Something bad is in that forest. You're not wrong about that. Vicky began helping Liana. There is something bad in that forest. The 
forest recognizes its own. Everyone turned to the knife sharpening man, but he showed no signs of elaborating. <laughs> Don't mind Reggie there, he's okay. I'm Stan. Care for a bonbon? The old man held out a chocolate covered cherry. No, uh, thanks, Stan. I stood up and looked through one of the cottage windows. Nothing but the dark out there. I sighed and sat down again. <sighs> I thought I was done. I thought that now I would be able to rest. Don't we ever get to rest? Everyone looked at each other, but no one spoke. We don't. Not yet. One day, I hope. How long have you been here? How long? <laughs> uh, oh, I don't know. But I've seen a lot of people come and go. Why haven't you gone? I needed information, but wasn't sure if I was even asking the right questions. We stay to help all of those like you pass through. And to protect those still living. Protect them from what? That icy chill I'd felt earlier as I walked by the forest returned. Protect them from the monsters that inhabit this realm. Monsters? Better you see for yourself. She tossed a jacket and belt to me, then handed me a sharp knife. I stared down at the knife, noticing its sharp, gleaming edge, and turned my gaze away. What do the living have to fear from anything in here? Stan looked up from his card game. The monsters are constantly trying to find an entry into the living world. Some say they were once there and are trying to find their way home. Sometimes one will slip through, or three, or five, but we do our best to keep as many here as we can. And what happens if they find a way? Death, murder, mayhem. So, you all hunt monsters? We don't hunt monsters. You do. We're just the backup in case any of them decide to come out of the forest. Best get ready to go. Stan nodded, got up from the card game and disappeared behind a door. He returned a few minutes later with a group of five other people following behind him. There were two men and three women. One of the women, thin and short with blonde hair, looked on the verge of a hysteria. Obviously, she wasn't handling her afterlife very well. Vicky put her arm around her. It's okay, Karen. Just breathe. We all put on the jackets that Liana passed out, and I strapped a belt and the knife around my waist. Once we were done, Liana led us out of the front door of the cottage. As the darkness covered us, I looked back longingly at the cottage in its green-tinged light. We walked towards the forest. From this direction, I could see that it spread as far as the eye could see across the horizon and curved around. It looked as if the cottages were in a large circular space that the forest had not yet encroached upon. There was no moon and little light outside, but I could see the glow of the phosphorence all throughout the forest. It was beautiful in an eerie, eldritch sort of way, and I found, as we grew nearer, that once again I was equal parts frightened by and drawn to the forest. These feelings rumbled around inside of me, growing stronger the closer we got to the trees. We stopped twenty paces from the forest, and Liana turned to face the group. In order to transition... To leave here, each one of you must go into the forest behind me. We waited for her to continue, but she just stood there, not saying anything. And? And that's it. I can't give any further direction than that. But you said something about monsters. Liana looked at me with something like sadness in her deep, dark eyes. Yes, 
You will each meet monsters. It's up to you what to do when you meet them. Everyone began talking over each other then. What do you mean, what to do? We kill them, right? Uh, we kill monsters. This is crazy. What is going on here? I can't take this. I just want to go home. And then suddenly a high-pitched scream erupted from the forest and the trees began to wave their knobbly branches. The group instantly quieted, although I could hear soft sobbing from Karen. If we go in there and meet our monsters, then we'll be able to leave here. If that is your choice, yes. I turned back to the forest. The twisted tree branches seemed to crook their limbs and beckon me forward, and the moss pulsed glimmering light towards me. Out of the corner of my eye I could see the others, silent, fidgeting, unsure what to do. (sighs) Well, hell. I wasn't going to stand here and wait for someone else to move first. I took one step and then another, moving towards the trees. I was beyond terrified. I walked on and was halfway to the forest when the others started moving behind me. I turned to see one of the men, a stocky jock type, sprinting towards me and then past me, giving me a thumbs up as he ran ahead. I rolled my eyes. I saw Jockman disappear into the trees. As I drew nearer, the same smell reached out to me. Rot and sweet, repellent and enticing. My brain had trouble categorising the smell. Was it bad? Was it good? Dangerous? Or safe? I began to breathe more shallowly. As I stepped into the forest, I had the urge to look back, to see Liana and Vicky and Stan and Reggie but I decided against it. I continued to walk slowly, following a sort of path. The farther I went in, the narrower the path became as vines and leaves and twisted branches closed in. Soon the path vanished entirely beneath my feet, and I had no idea which way to go. Not sure of what I was doing, I kept walking, shoulders hunched up around my ears, knife clenched tightly in my hand. I tried to keep my eyes focused straight ahead, but the horrors of the forest kept calling out to me. A figure dangling by its neck from a tree limb, a pair of hands reaching out of a pool of oozing black liquid, a human ribcage lying on the ground with vines and flowers growing through it. Around me the air was filled with whispers and rustling, and I kept thinking that I was seeing movement from the corners of my eyes. After a minute, I realised I was seeing movement. The movement of some of the others who'd come into the forest behind me. Lights flickered around me, and the tree limbs continued to beckon me on. I don't know how long I'd walked when I realised I was alone and could see no others around. It was then that I heard a loud, hoarse scream echo through the forest. It was masculine, and my money was on Jockman. The scream continued until it reached an abrupt end, and then all was silence. Quieter than quiet as if the forest had inhaled and was now holding its breath. Out of the silence, a silvery mist drifted down from above. It settled damply on my skin for a moment and then disappeared. I spied the path again just to my right, barely visible under a layer of dead leaves. I began walking towards it. Then I heard another sound. Not a scream this time. More like a hum. A soft, warm, lilting hum that soothed some of my fear and replaced it with curiosity. I turned and began to walk in the opposite direction, deeper into the forest, led by the sound. As I walked, my eyes began to see the beauty of the forest existing alongside the horror. 
Mounds of black spongy fungus wept bright crimson liquid. Butterflies with deep violet wings left trails of blue and gold light as they flew in spirals. Sharp spikes with needle-like teeth erupted from piles of putrid green goo, and small sparkling bubbles bobbed lazily through the air. The more I looked, the more intrigued I became. What at first seemed terrifying soon became compelling. The forest wasn't scary. It was dark. It was mysterious. And it was... At that moment, I heard a rustling sound from ahead of me. Curious, I moved closer and saw a figure moving out of the undergrowth towards me. It was a woman with dark hair wearing blue jeans, combat boots, a girly white blouse and a familiar tattoo on the inside of her wrist. With shock, I looked up and saw my own face staring back at me. I stood frozen, uncomprehending as I looked at this other me wearing my clothes, my skin, my face. Suddenly she curled up her hands and lunged towards me. Boo! I fell back on my ass and then scrambled to get up as she laughed loudly, <laughs> holding her stomach. <laughs> you should see the look on your face. <laughs> the initial shock was wearing off, replaced by wariness. Who? What are you? She looked at me in exasperation. Isn't it obvious? I'm you, silly. She spoke with exaggerated patience, as if needing to explain something for the tenth time to a stubborn child. You're not me. I'm me. We're both me. Us. She grinned and swung her arms, rocking back and forth, toe to heel, heel to toe on her combat boots, just like I did when I was exceptionally happy. No, we're not. We're not the same. I was growing frustrated now. This stranger had my face, had my mannerisms, but she was not me. She was an imposter. Okay, I can see you're having trouble with this, so let me explain. When you died, you split into two. Me and you. I arrived in the forest, you arrived outside of the forest. We're the same, though. Everything that you have, I have. Everything that I have, you have. Why? That makes no sense. I backed away, my body tense, ready to run. <laughs> Like anything here makes sense. She then looked at me slyly, pondering. Uh, you know, though, there really should only be one of us. There's no need for two. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm getting a bloody kick out of this, but... Uh... Another scream split the forest, and I remembered why I was here. This is nice and everything, but I don't have time for chit-chat with my weirdo doppelganger. What's your hurry, darling? Don't you want to stay and have some fun? I'm not here for fun. I'm here looking for a monster. She stared at me incredulously. And then she began to laugh again, loudly. Every time she came close to stopping, she looked at me and then dissolved into a fit of giggles again. I watched this for a minute and then started to turn away, but her voice stopped me. <laughs> Don't you... Don't you know? She stood up, her laughter dying. I am the monster. I sucked in my breath. My hand holding the knife gripped tighter. Her eyes narrowed as she noticed the movement. Of course. That means you 
are the monster as well. I thought fast. If she was the monster and Liana was right, then she was trying to find a way back to the living world, the daylight world, and I couldn't let her get there. But what was I going to do? I stood frozen, unable to form a plan or even a coherent thought. Huh. I'm not any kind of monster. Oh, but you are. She had a wry smile on her face. The forest knows its own. And then she turned and ran, disappearing into the undergrowth again. I hesitated, not sure if I should follow, madness, or run in the opposite direction. Shit! I turned and ran. I wandered for a time, hearing occasional screams but farther away now. It seemed that I was moving deeper into the heart of the forest. At one point I heard the sound of running water and found a small dark waterfall glinting with tiny pinpricks of light. I knelt and cupped my hands, drinking greedily. The water was cool and tasted of sweet, rich earth. I drank several more handfuls and moved on, guided by a growing sense of rightness that seemed very out of place considering where I was. In my previous life I had never felt safe. Fear and anxiety were constant companions. Here in the forest I felt, for the first time in memory, a sense of belonging, of contentment, of home. This was my home now, and I would do anything to protect it, even kill. As if to confirm this realisation, the forest seemed to murmur around me. The murmuring turned into the sound of nearby voices. Moving through a tangle of slimy hanging vines, I entered a small clearing. Two women were there, or rather, one woman and her monster. It was the thin blonde woman, Karen. She saw me, and her eyes lit up with relief. Oh, thank God. She limped over to me. She seemed to have twisted her ankle. There was a growing bloodstain spreading over the right side of her T-shirt. Her mirror image winked at me, pointing her knife at Karen. Can you believe this? Please, you have to help me. She's trying to kill me. Karen panted, clawing at my arms. Her mirror image rolled her eyes. Duh, that's kind of the point, moron. As I looked at Karen, I saw myself. Scared, helpless, letting other people push her around. I didn't want to be like that anymore. I wanted to be strong. I had to be strong. I pulled Karen's hands away from me. She scrambled in fear, growing more hysterical. I pushed her away from me and she fell to the ground. She looked up at me, confused. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This isn't my fight. I can't help you. You have to fight your own monster. I watched then as she turned and tried to get up and run. Her mirror image grinned, twirling the knife in her hand. Karen didn't make it far before she tripped and went sprawling. She rolled over and then froze as her double stalked towards her. The woman bent over Karen and gently took a lock of blonde hair in her hand. So pretty. Then the knife came down, thrusting into Karen's chest not once or twice, but a dozen times, until Karen had stopped moving and lay perfectly still on the forest floor. The monster stood up and grinned at me, sprays of blood across her face, arms and chest. She was such a pansy. What happens to her now? Uh, she moves on, to wherever she's meant to be. 
We both turned then as we noticed that a deep violet glow had appeared in the clearing. It grew until it formed the outline of a door. The woman smiled again. That's my cue. She began walking towards the door. It was opening, and on the other side was the living world. I looked around the clearing, searching for help, but it was just her and me. I stood frozen and watched helplessly as she drew nearer to the door. Are you just going to stand there and watch? Wait and hope that someone else comes along and decides to do something? She was almost there. I could see through the door. There were people going about their everyday lives. Are you just going to let them die? Don't just stand there. With a shaking hand, I quietly pulled my knife from my belt. I had to do what Karen couldn't do and kill her monster. I couldn't let her go through that door. I felt a rush of adrenaline move through me as I ran forward and raised the knife. I brought the blade down into the woman's back, knocking her to the ground. She tried to reach around to grab me, but I smacked her hand away. I pulled the knife out and plunged it in again, and was surprised to feel pleasure as I watched the blood flow out. I plunged again, and again, and again, and then again. When the monster stopped moving, I stood. My whole body, my entire being felt electric, alive. Her blood covered my hands and arms. Her life, her future, ended by me. I watched as the door closed and the violet light shimmered away. I knew what I needed to do now. I ran through the forest, leaping over rotting logs, sidestepping puddles of gore and scattering a colony of bats. I felt exhilarated, invincible. This feeling was amazing. I felt powerful and strong and... and unafraid. I finally found my other self sitting near a red pool, the violet butterflies flying gold and blue circles around her. She stood slowly, brushing herself off and faced me. Have you figured it all out yet? The look in her eyes told me that she already knew the answer. I am the monster. I know that now. So are you. The difference between us is that I found my place. This place is where I belong. The forest knows its own. You want to go back to where the living dwell, and I can't let you do that. My other self smirked at me. <laughs> and you're really going to stop me? I really am. I smiled, and I knew that I would. Afterwards, I sat there with her for a time. I felt a little sad. After all, she did have my face, and in some ways she was a part of me. I did what I had to, though, and both the forest and the living world were safer. Looking at her, she seemed peaceful, quiet, at rest. Maybe she was. I bent over and gave her a little kiss on the cheek. I pulled my knife free of her chest and wiped the blade on the moss-covered ground. Sleep now. And then I stood up and began to walk away back into the forest. I looked back once and saw vines reaching for her, covering her, and pulling her back deeper into the dark, back where she belonged. This is my afterlife. It's nothing like I imagined but I'm happy here. I live in the dark of a beautiful, terrible forest. It matches the darkness inside myself. I speak to others in the forest who, like me, have found their way home. 
I occasionally catch glimpses of Liana and Vicky and Stan and Reggie as they bring another group of new arrivals to the edge of the forest. I think they know they will never leave here. They belong here just as much as I belong here. I wonder about the other places that people go when they die. The forest isn't for everyone. I'm sure there are places with golden sunshine, peace, love and happiness all the live long day. I hope Karen is there and that she's happy. For me, my place is here in the dark, in the forest. When you're a kid, the last thing you want to do is run afoul of the town bullies. We all know how that goes. Summer-long vendettas, theft, property damage, fights. If you accidentally enrage those guys, it's understandable that you might want to run away. But in this tale, shared with us by author Larry Hinkle, the place that our heroes Billy and Greg run to may pose even more danger than their tormentors. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers, Matthew Bradford, Jeff Clement, Atticus Jackson, Dan Zapula, and Jesse Cornett. So take note of the old adage, out of the frying pan and into the fire. It might well ring true, especially when you find yourself under strange constellations. We crouched, low to the ground, watching the corn. Thirty minutes earlier, I'd been playing ball with my best friend Doug when I mistimed his throw. The ball sailed over my glove and smacked hard into the door of Joe Thompson's cherry red Camaro as it cruised down the street. Joe slammed the brakes. Then he, Mike, and Big Tom, all seniors, had jumped out cussing up a storm. We dropped our gloves and ran for the woods behind my house. Mike and Big Tom took off after us. Joe hopped back into his Camaro and floored it, a red rocket piloted by a lit stick of dynamite. He was going to circle back around behind the woods and try to cut us off. A few minutes later, we stumbled out of the trees and onto the road. About 50 yards down from us was old Bob's farm, proud home of the county's oldest corn maze. Doug took off for the maze first with me hot on his tail. Mike and Big Tom finally came out of the woods and started up after us. Doug ran straight into the maze without stopping, but I slowed down in the parking lot. Something about the maze didn't look right. It was a perfect autumn day without a cloud in the sky, but there was a darkness shimmering in the air high above the corn. It looked like night was pushing through the daytime sky. I swear I could see Orion, Taurus, and the Pleiades shining down. I shook my head and the sky returned to normal. I looked back down the road, Mike was gaining on us, but Big Tom had fallen way behind. If we were lucky, we might be able to lose the older boys in the corn. It was a big if, but it was the only shot we had. So I followed Doug into the maze. Six turns in, I heard Joe slam on his brakes, tires sliding across the gravel lot. 
Mike and Big Tom had stayed at the entrance waiting for their orders. Then the three older boys rushed into the maze. Let's go piggy hunting! We're coming for you, piggies! We panicked and ran deeper into the maze. With each turn, the rows narrowed. The stalks grew taller and taller. Tassels stuck to our sweaty skin and tangled in our hair. Husks slapped at our arms and our legs. I could hear the older boys yelling in the distance, but they didn't seem to be getting any closer. Maybe we still had a chance. After a few more minutes, the path we were on ended in a large clearing in the middle of the maze. Doug kept a few paces ahead of me. What the hell? How big is this thing? I was wheezing, wiping sweat from my forehead as I tried to catch my breath. Stop a second, Doug. Are you crazy? We gotta keep moving. He started for an open road to our left. I grabbed his arm. Wait, I think we're okay for a second. Just listen, those guys aren't anywhere near us. We could hear Mike and Big Tom's voices somewhere far off to our left. Joe sounded even further away to the right. We crouched down and we watched the corn. Let's wait here a little longer. Maybe they'll get tired and leave. Doug nodded, his eyes wide with fear. I knew he had a reason to be afraid. There was a nasty scar above his right eyebrow from a beating Joe and Mike had given him last year for spilling a pop on Joe's shoes. Big Tom hadn't joined their gang yet, or the beating would have been a lot worse. Big Tom yelled from somewhere to our right. We could hear him crashing through the stocks. Mike, where'd you go? Mike, still far to our left, sounded pissed. Where did I go? Where the hell did you go? I didn't go anywhere, numb nuts. I turned around and you were gone. Well, stay there. I'm coming over to where you are. And then we're getting out of here. I'm tired of running around looking for those punks. But what about Joe? What about him? If he wants to chase his tail in this stupid maze, let him. Okay, but hurry up. It's getting really dark. Was that fear in his voice? I couldn't imagine Big Tom being scared of anything. He's right. It's getting really dark. How long have we been in here? I looked up. The sky was the color of an angry bruise, and the stars were coming out. How long had we been in the maze? A blood-red moon drifted into view over the edge of the clearing. A second smaller moon came chasing a few moments later. Do you see that? What the hell? How are there two moons? It's gotta be a trick. Maybe, maybe the light's bouncing off the clouds or something. Billy, look at the stars. I held my hand to block out the moons. Millions of multicolored stars shimmered overhead. Way more than should be visible under one moon, let alone two. The sky was ablaze with twinkling lights. So many they made me dizzy. But they weren't my stars. The ones Dad taught me when I was younger. The constellations were strange. The patterns all jumbled up. The maze looked like another world in the crimson moonlight. The rows of corn looked different, too. The stalks leaning and bending at impossible angles. The colors were harder, more vibrant. It made my eyes ache to look at anything for too long. And my teeth felt like I was chewing on tinfoil. The air was hot, thick and heavy. Its weight pushed down on us, holding us in place. Every breath was harder than the last. Everything felt wrong in a way I couldn't describe. I only knew we didn't belong here, under this alien sky. Nobody did. 
The wind picked up. The rustling of the corn sounded like whispering, but in a language I didn't want to understand. The harder the wind blew, the louder the whispering grew, until the corn husks peeled open and each kernel was a screaming mouth, and the sound felt like a dentist's drill in the base of my skull. From somewhere in the maze, something that almost sounded like Joe taunted us. You don't have to worry about me now, piggies. He started to sing in a high-pitched, childish voice. Mike and Big Tom started to sing along with him, and soon they were joined by a chorus of voices that seemed to swirl through the rows around the clearing, coming from everywhere and nowhere at once. We fell to our knees and covered our ears, but our hands couldn't shut out their song, and we screamed and screamed and begged for it to end, and then everything just stopped. I don't know how long we laid there, huddled in the dirt. I'd lost any sense of time and place. But when I felt the earth breathing beneath me, up and down, up and down, I knew we had to move. I shook Doug's shoulder. Doug, get up. We have to go. Doug didn't answer. He was curled into a ball, shaking. In the corn off to our right, I heard someone, some thing, moving. I looked up and saw an immense shaggy form in the distance. It towered over the maze as it shambled through the rows. Its eyes blazed a hungry shade of orange. I shook Doug again, harder this time. Doug, we have to go, now! New shoots wiggled up from the soil, swaying in time to an inner music. I knew if I heard the song, it would drive me insane. Their blooms opened and released a sickly sweet stench like the slaughterhouse outside of town on a hot, humid day. I felt something wet on my face and ran my hand across my lip. My nose was bleeding. Doug finally stood up, panting. The front of his shorts was dark. He'd wet himself. It's not real. It's not real. It's not real. It's not real. His eyes were squeezed shut and had his hands over his ears. The blooms turned at the sound of his voice. New vines snaked up from the dirt and slithered towards us. The ground pitched violently. Stalks exploded up into the sky. Something was coming. Something big. Run! I shoved Doug ahead of me, and we burst back into the maze. We ran blindly, not paying attention to the path, smashing through walls of corn. The chutes followed us, wriggling over and through the crushed stalks. One of them caught my ankle and wrapped tight right above my shoe. I fell down in the dirt. Doug kept going. The ground was teeming with fat, gelatinous, squirming things that crawled over my hands and my arms, making their way towards my face. I wanted to scream again, but I was afraid to open my mouth. I tried to run, but the vines still had hold of my ankle. I kicked my foot back and forth until I pulled free. My ankle burned where the vine had touched it, and my shoe was wet with blood. I saw Doug up ahead, skidding and turning down a road to his left. Behind me, I heard Doug scream. That can't be right. Doug was right up ahead of me. The scream must have come from one of the older boys. I turned down the path Doug took and smashed into Big Tom's chest. The impact knocked me back down onto my ass. Jesus, watch where you're going, idiot. His voice sounded wet. I looked up at him. The skin of his face hung down around his collar. His eyes were impossibly white and large against the glistening red meat. His lipless mouth stretched into 
a toothy grin too wide for his face. I'm on my way to join the others. You're coming too. But first, I have to take off your mask. He raked at my cheek, but I ducked out of the way. With all the strength I could muster, I kicked him between the legs and ran. Behind me, Big Tom laughed. His voice grew deeper and gravelier as if his mouth was full of dirt. We'll see you soon enough, piggy! I shouted for Doug as I ran blindly through the maze. Once, I thought I heard him answer from someplace far ahead, but his voice was drowned out by the sound of the shambling beast that patrolled the corn. I kept running, following the path when the rows were clear, smashing through the stalks when they weren't. My own voice was little more than a rasp now. The pain in my legs and lungs felt like I'd been running for hours, but I had no idea how long I'd been trapped there, or how many times I'd missed the exit. I turned another blind corner and saw Doug ahead of me, running down a dead-end row. Doug! Wait! I tried to yell, but my voice was completely gone now. He plowed through the wall of the corn and disappeared into the darkness. I ran after him, trying to catch up. I burst through the row and stumbled into a dusty parking lot. The sunlight behind me. Holding my hand over my eyes, I heard children playing nearby. I squinted and looked around. I was out of the maze. Doug was waiting for me about ten feet away. Ha! Ha! Can you believe we finally made it out of there? His face was filthy and he had corn tassels in his hair. He patted his chest and dust puffed off his green shirt. His jeans were covered in dirt and they were totally dry. What are you boys doing in my corn? Is that your car? He pointed to a white Mustang parked in the parking lot with a baseball-sized dent above the rear tire. There was at least three days' worth of dust on it. I shook my head. You know whose it is? Doug looked at the old man. No, never seen it before. Have we, Bill? Doug turned and winked at me. His smile was impossibly wide, and his eyes were black pools. The scar above his eyebrow was gone. I heard a rustling in the corn behind me. I looked back. There was a darkness in the air, high above the maze, and I could see an ocean of stars glittering through the shadow. But they weren't my stars. In our final tale, we join Margaret on a homecoming. It isn't a warm reunion, though. No, she's there to burn the place down. That's understandable, though, given the tragic and terrible events that occurred there during her childhood. But in this tale, shared with us by author T. Michael Argent, we discover that the events of the past are a little more than just typical family drama. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Mike Delgadio, Mary Murphy, Ellie Hirschman, and Graham Rowett. So it's time to put an end to the torments of the past and score a decisive blow against the horrors that haunt us. So join us in bidding everyone farewell and good night.
The longer I drove, the more aware I became of the creeping dread that was coming over me. The dark colors of the sunset in the sky weren't helping. Luckily, the anger soon overcame it, and I gripped the steering wheel tight until my knuckles turned white. Over 30 years had passed since I had been to the place I was going, but the rage that came at the thought of it never really went away. By the end of the night, I wouldn't have a reason to be angry anymore. A quick look in the back seat confirmed the jerry cans were still there, gasoline sloshing in them as I took every bump on the highway. I had gotten the call earlier that day. My father had finally succumbed to what had been eating at him since that long-ago summer when everything happened. I was left as the last remaining member of the family we had been over three decades prior. Mom kicked the bucket ten years ago, drank herself to death in a motel room after another fight with Dad. And my brother, Casey, thinking about him still caused my vision to blur. I almost missed the exit, I was so deep in thought. But the sign caught my eye just in time, bearing those four cursed words. Exit 29, Woodland Parkway. I took it almost hesitantly, winding my way down the curve to the traffic light. I turned left and drove for another ten or so minutes, watching as the familiar sights jumped out at me from my memory. The red house with the gabled roof, the corner gas station where Dad always filled up his truck, the field that used to have horses in it, but was now empty and silent. Soon after that, the familiar turnoff rose out of the darkness ahead. I could feel myself trying to push on the gas harder and keep driving past, but I pressed on the brakes and took the turn. Leaves and branches crunched under my wheels as I wound around the trees, waiting for it to come through the darkness. Soon enough, it did looming out from the last dying rays of the sun as I turned the final corner. I pulled up beside the front porch and stared. It was just as ugly as when I first saw it through the windows of the moving van, only made worse by the passage of time. The blue siding had faded to a dull gray, crumbling and dry and peeling. A few of the windows were smashed, the boards of the porch looked like they would crack if I stepped on them. If I wasn't mistaken, no one had lived here since us all those years ago. It was for the best, I suppose. I snatched a jerry can from the back seat and stepped out of the car. I made my way to the porch steps, looking up at it as it loomed over me. A curved section of peeling paint coupled with the circular attic window made it look like it was smiling down at me, like it was pleased I had finally decided to come back. The face looked familiar. Its happiness would be short-lived. I looked back at the driveway, remembering that long-ago summer day when we had moved in. The first truck just arrived and the next one was coming around the bend. The 
first truck had just arrived, and the next one was coming around the bend. I could hear Casey running through the house behind me, laughing as he explored every room. As I sidestepped the workers carrying the couch up the front steps, I wondered if he'd like fourth grade. I felt a hand on my shoulder and looked up. Dad smiled and gave it a squeeze. You can't just stand here all day, Margie. Don't you want to get done so we can order pizza faster? At the first mention of pizza, I perked up. (laughs) Go help your mother carry the boxes in. I ran over to the moving van and watched as Mom hefted a cardboard box with my name on it. When she saw me, she let out a fake groan. Jeez, what's in here, Margaret? Rocks? Mom had never liked my nickname. She didn't call me Margie, no matter how many times I told her. No, those are my dolls. I knew I was getting a little too old for them. I was starting seventh grade in the fall. I wanted them just a little longer. Grab another one and let's go inside. As we entered the house and headed for the stairs, Casey came barreling out of the kitchen, nearly knocking us over. Casey! Do you actually want to make yourself useful and go and help your father? Okay, Mom. As he stomped down the porch and into the yard, Mom sighed. Ugh, I don't know what we're going to do with him. A few hours later, I was just finishing setting up my bed when I heard voices coming from somewhere out in the hallway. Peeking out, I saw Casey sitting by the door to the spare bedroom, talking to someone inside. That's a cool name. Mine is Casey. We just moved in here a few hours ago. There's me and mom and dad and my sister Margie. I waited a few seconds for someone to respond, but no one did. He answered anyway, like someone had. Oh, that's too bad. Is it hard being trapped in the wall like that? I frowned, his words catching me off guard. It looked like he was about to speak again, so I called out. Who are you talking to? I walked down the hallway towards him and stared into the room. There was no one there. Mom and Dad hadn't had time to set anything up yet. Casey smiled. There's someone trapped in the wall. He's been in there for a long time. He sounded lonely, so I thought I'd talk to him a little. From downstairs... Dad called that the pizza was here. I've got to go now. Talk to you later. He bounced up and ran down the stairs, disappearing out of sight. I looked into the room one more time. In a shadowy corner near the closet, there was a water stain on the wall that looked like an abstract face. As I watched, the corner seemed to grow darker until I couldn't see it anymore. Shivering, I left the room and walked downstairs into the foyer.
the foyer. I took out my flashlight and clicked it on, shining the beam around. The living room door was to my left, the stairs to my right, and the archway that led to the kitchen straight ahead. Unscrewing the jerry can, I started pouring gasoline as I walked, leaving a trail behind me. The floorboards creaked under my feet as I passed through the arch. The appliances were long gone, with the exception of the sink. I shined my light inside. An inch of brown, gritty water covered the bottom, with leaves floating in it that must have come from the broken window above. The backyard outside certainly looked like it hadn't been kept up in over 30 years. The grass was knee-high and choked with weeds. The wooden fence rotted away long ago, allowing the brush to sweep into the woods behind the house. I turned back around and went into the foyer again. I was about to head into the living room when I saw it. How had I missed it when I first walked in? It was five feet from the front door, sitting at the bottom of the staircase. I brushed the dust off its top and stared at it. Casey had always hated it, the small statue at the bottom of the banister. There was a small statue at the bottom of the banister. Casey was on the porch, staring through the front door at it. I was in the kitchen, helping Mom cook dinner when he called my name. Margie! Go help your brother. She continued to stir the pot of spaghetti. Groaning, I walked into the foyer and stared at him. What is it now? He pointed. What's that thing at the bottom of the stairs? I looked beside me. Where a newel post should be stood a very crudely sculpted person. There was a barely perceptible human-like shape to it, with two lines curved beside the center and one in the middle to look slightly like arms and legs. Where the head should be was a misshapen, rounded piece of wood with small depressions where a mouth and eyes would go. The similarities ended there. <sighs> it's a statue. Some people put them at the bottom of stairs instead of posts. Casey gulped. I don't like it. It looks like a person. I walked over to where he stood. The bright light outside contrasted with the cool, dark interior of the house. I squinted. The way the shadows hit the depressions in the head made it look like it had eyes. Or rather, black pits where eyes should be. So what? You have no trouble talking to your friend in the corner of the spare room. He shook his head. But, but I can't see him. I have to look at this every time I come in the house. I could have gotten annoyed and told him to drop it, but seeing his scared expression made me feel bad. An idea suddenly clicked in my head. Well, if it looks like a person... Why don't we dress it up like one? A few minutes later, Dad stared at us like we had gone insane. 
What do you mean, do you have any clothes you don't want? I explained to him what we wanted to do again. His expression remained neutral, but a smile was creeping at the corners of his lips. Hold on, I'm sure I have some. He disappeared into the closet and came out a few minutes later with an old jacket, a ball cap, and a pair of gardening gloves. How are these? I saw Casey smile and nodded. These'll be just great. We ran back down the stairs. I want those back eventually. Casey put the ball cap on the statue's top while I buttoned the jacket around the bottom. Grabbing some clothespins, I attached the gloves to the sleeves. We took a step back to admire our work. There. How's that? Casey grinned. (laughs) It's a lot better. I watched as his eyes traveled from top to bottom, from the hat to the collar to the buttons. Buttons. There were a few buttons lying at the bottom of the staircase. They were covered in dust. I recognized the black and red color pattern that belonged to Dad's old jacket. I distantly wondered where the rest of the outfit had gone. I looked at the dark upstairs hallway, covered in shadows. I wasn't ready to go up there yet. I needed the rest of the puzzle. The statue would be important later. What happened between then? Turning towards the living room, I got my answer. Mom's yellow curtains with the flowers on them were still stuck to the windows, now tattered and dirty with the passage of time. The glass wasn't broken here, so they didn't float on an invisible breeze. I sloshed some gas inside and tried to remember where everything had been. The old TV against the wall next to the door. Dad's chair and the couch facing it. The china cabinet in the back with the plates we only used on Christmas. Casey and I would get in trouble for running around in there, especially during our games of hide and seek. and seek. Mom went out for the night to go have dinner with some friends. It was just me, Dad, and Casey. Dad had gone to the video store and rented us a VHS of the Goonies. We sat there on the couch, eating the leftover meatloaf Mom had left for us before Casey began to look bored. He put his plate on the coffee table. I've seen this already. Can we do something else? Dad looked thoughtful for a moment, before nodding. Yeah, we can't tell Mom that we just sat here all night watching a movie. What should we do instead? Casey thought for a moment before jumping to his feet. Hide and seek. 
I wasn't exactly in the mood for it, but he obviously was, so I relented, getting up to stand beside him. Sure, why not? Alright, Casey, since it was your idea, you get to be the seeker first. He shut off the TV and ran over to the light switch. Do you know what makes hide-and-seek better? We both shook our heads. With a flick of his hand, the room was plunged into pitch blackness. Playing in the dark! (laughs) He punctuated this with a mock evil laugh, and we both cried out in delight. (laughs) I heard Casey head to the couch and begin counting. The living room wasn't big, but there were certainly enough places to hide for both Dad and me. As I went along trying to find a spot... I banged my shin against the china cabinet and almost cried out. I could hear Casey nearing 30. Time was running out. I was just about to hide behind the kitchen door when a soft voice came from somewhere nearby. Hide in here. I paused for a moment. It sounded like Dad but I could have sworn I heard him near the TV a minute ago. As I groped along in the darkness, my hand brushed against something soft and billowy. Mom's curtains. I could feel something solid behind the fabric. Behind here. (laughs) The curtains reached all the way to the floor. If I hid with Dad, it would be a long time before Casey found us. I felt a hand take hold of mine and pull me behind the curtain. The nails dug into my palm for a moment, and it felt clammy. I began to whisper something to him, but the voice shushed me, and I felt the nails pierce harder. I figured it was just Dad making sure that I would be quiet. Casey got to 100. We stood there in the darkness for a few more moments before it was suddenly punctured by a loud cry of pain. A feeling of confusion washed over me. Before I could make sense of what was wrong, Casey cried out again. Casey's cries of pain continued for a few more seconds before they suddenly escalated. I went to leave our hiding spot, but the hand grabbed me and began to pull me back. Dad, stop! I tried to disentangle myself from his grip. His fingernails suddenly dug into my shoulder. I dug my own fingernails into his knuckles, and the hand relaxed its grip, allowing me to break free. Casey was outright crying now. I ran in the direction of the TV, nearly tripping over the coffee table, before I managed to flick on the lights. Casey was lying in the center of the rug, tears streaming down his face. His arms were covered in red welts and bruises. He looked up at me. Uh, 
<laughs> You're mean. <laughs> I looked up towards the curtains for Dad so he could tell him it couldn't have been me when I stopped. The curtains lay flat against the window with no outline behind them. There was no trace that Dad had been there at all. I was about to ask Casey what happened when we both heard footsteps down the stairs. Dad walked into the room, chuckling to himself. <laughs> Sorry about that. I had to run to the bathroom. Case, did you find... He stopped when he saw the scene before him. He ran over to Casey and looked at his arms. Jesus, buddy, what happened? It looks like someone bit you or something. Ow! Ow! Looking closer, I saw that it was true. The welts that covered Casey's arms looked more like bite marks than anything else. I pointed to my hiding spot. I, I was hiding behind the curtain. Dad, I th thought you were there with me. A look of confusion came over his face. What? I just told you I went to the bathroom. I wasn't down here, Margie. Casey was still crying on the floor as I looked at my shoulder. Red welts, five of them, were dug into the skin. A chill ran down my spine, and I shook my head, turning away from the room. I shook my head, turning away from the room. I looked at the door to the kitchen on the far wall before deciding I had stalled enough. The night could only last so long. I didn't know if I'd have the courage to torch the place when the sun began to rise. Reluctantly, I shuffled my feet back into the foyer. My car was still parked in the driveway, waiting for my return. The button snapped under my feet as I mounted the stairs, letting the gas drip as I climbed up. Somewhere in the back of my mind, I was worried about the steps still being able to support my weight, but I pushed these thoughts aside as I continued. But I misjudged my step. My foot hit the top of the next, causing me to fall to my knees, skinning them hard and dropping the can. I winced with pain and rolled over, now sitting down and looking at the shadowy foyer below. Another memory sprang up. This one about the time I had been sitting right there, the night Mom and Dad were arguing in the kitchen. Mom and Dad were arguing in the kitchen. Their voices were so loud I had woken up and walked out to see what was going on. Casey was either asleep or too scared to leave his room following the hide-and-seek incident, so I was alone on the stairs, listening to the rapidly escalating voices. Jesus, Frank. I can't even leave you alone with the kids for one night without something going wrong. I already told you. I was in the bathroom while whatever happened with Casey was going on. I couldn't have been gone for more than a minute. You saw what happened in that minute. Who the hell turns off the lights to play hide-and-seek? I don't know. I just thought it would be more fun for the kids. I'm doing the best I can. This is exactly why I didn't want to do it. I knew something like this would happen. 
Another thing, too. You need to talk to Margaret about this. I know she did that to Casey. You saw her face when she got home. Diane, she was terrified. Do you think she could have done that in 60 seconds? And to her own brother? The room was silent for a moment before Mom answered. I don't know, Frank. Let's just drop it for now. Maybe you're right. He might have just tripped and hit his arm or something. That's for damn sure. In the meantime, can you please try not to get up so much during the night? What do you mean? You know what I'm talking about. I'll wake up in the middle of the night and hear you shuffling around the room. Sometimes you'll be standing by the window, looking out. If you can't fall asleep, maybe go into the living room and watch TV or something. Diane, I never get up at night. Dr. Springer gave me those sleeping pills. I haven't gotten up in at least a few weeks. I could feel in the silence that Mom was shivering. I don't know then. Maybe I'm just having nightmares. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have yelled at you. It's fine. Just don't accuse Margaret of anything, please. I won't. I promise. I looked down the stairs at the statue, still in its silly outfit. Something about seeing it in the darkness gave me a sense of unease. The featureless head, with its smooth wooden surface, could be looking in any direction, even towards me. I got back up and started in the direction of my room, then froze. Casey was standing in the middle of the hallway, staring into the spare room again. He was speaking quietly, but I could still hear his words. Why can't you tell him to go away? He hurt me a few days ago, and now he won't leave me alone. In the daytime, I would have walked past him, but seeing him in the dark, staring into the gloom through the open door, caused me to walk forward. Are you talking to the man in the wall again? Casey nodded. He said he's friends with the man in the living room. The living room man comes and stands beside my bed at night and laughs at me. I asked him to make him go away, but he says he can't leave the wall. I looked inside for myself. The curtains were drawn but the silvery moonlight that peeked behind them illuminated the corner just enough to make out the abstract face. It looked wider than when I had seen it the first time. Casey tried running into the room. Don't go. I need your help. Please, can't you make him go away? Please? I grabbed his arm and pulled him back just in time. I watched as the face seemed to sink back into the shadows. He went away again, like he always does. I don't like him anymore. Come on, Case. Let's go back to bed. I looked one more time into the room before taking him down the hallway to my bedroom.
down the hallway to my bedroom. I shone the light into the hallway, catching the other door at the end. I knew what the one across from mine belonged to, but I wasn't ready for that yet. Taking a deep breath, I started down the hallway, keeping the beam fixed on the door. I could still see some of the stickers I put on it days after moving in, now yellowed and cracked and peeling. Smiley faces. Snoopy and Woodstock. Flowers. That's what Casey must have seen the night I was lying in bed and heard someone knocking softly on my door. heard someone knocking softly on my door. I sat bolt upright in bed. I had been having a nightmare. I was looking into the spare room, at the face in the corner. It seemed to get larger, filling the entire space until its eyes and mouth were right up against the door, boring into me. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't move. The knock came again, softer this time. I pulled my comforter up to my chin and waited for it to stop. Instead, it came again, this time accompanied by a voice. Margie, are you awake? I pushed my sheets down and breathed a sigh of relief. It was just Casey. I got out of bed and opened the door just a crack. He was standing there in the dark hallway, a nervous expression on his face. The wounds on his arms had turned pinkish and white. I'm thirsty. Will you go downstairs with me and get some water? I looked past him into the darkness beyond. The faint strip of moonlight that came from the window beside the front door barely made its way up the stairs. I thought of the thing behind the curtain and almost turned him down when I saw how scared he looked. Casey's face was a mask of barely contained terror. I can't sleep. The man in the wall won't stop talking. I thought if I went away for a minute and came back, he'd be gone. I nodded. Sure, we'll go to the kitchen together. I held out my hand, and he took it with a smile. I left my door open so the illumination from my nightlight could be at the end of the hallway when we returned. We walked slowly, so we wouldn't wake up Mom and Dad. I had a nightmare. Me too. What happened in yours? I was in this dark place. I could hear you and Mom and Dad calling out my name, but I couldn't see anything. No matter how far I ran, or how much I screamed, I couldn't find you guys. I thought I would never wake up. I debated whether I should tell him about my own dream. I was about to open my mouth to say something when we heard it. The corner that would allow us to see down the staircase was only feet away. From around it came a low, scraping sound. Casey began to say something, probably to ask what the noise was, but 
but I put a finger to my lips. We looked at the shadow the moonlight was casting on the opposite wall. There was a strange shape writhing in it, seemingly growing larger with each additional sound. The noise was getting louder as well. I tried to shove Casey behind my back, but he ran up beside me and latched onto my arm. Taking quick steps, we rounded the corner and looked down the staircase. The first thing I noticed was that the statue was gone. My eyes were instantly drawn to the absence of it at the bottom of the stairs. For one brief moment, however, it was obstructed from my view by a dark object, followed by the same scraping sound. It was then that I looked up and saw what was making the noises. The statue was climbing the center of the stairs. One limp arm of the jacket outstretched, bending down slightly as the empty glove on its end lay limply on the banister like it was supporting itself. The ball cap shifted on its head upwards, exposing a large portion of the featureless wooden surface like it was looking squarely at us. In the few seconds it took us to process what we were seeing, the statue reached the top of the steps. The empty jacket sleeve shot out, and the gloved hand wrapped around Casey's wrist. I grabbed his other arm and tried to pull him back down the hallway. The sleeve began undulating, wrapping its way around his arm like a python. Whenever the fabric touched his old wounds, they opened again, creating a river of blood that began dripping onto the floor. I pulled harder, Casey's screams reaching a climax. The door opened behind us, and the hallway was suddenly flooded with light. As if a switch had been flipped, the pressure on Casey's arm let go, and the both of us went crashing to the floor. Kids? What are you two doing? Casey began sobbing, cradling his arm. Dad ran up and winced once he saw the wounds. What happened, buddy? Did your cuts open again? He pointed weakly towards the stairs. The man at the bottom. But he couldn't muster anything else. Mom ran over and looked down before a frown came across her face. There's no one down there, Case. I got up and ran over to Mom's side, looking down. The statue still sat where it probably always had, at the bottom of the stairs. The jacket still wrapped around it, and the cap still on its head. Mom went back to tend to Casey, but I looked closer. The left sleeve of the jacket was streaked with blood, pattering silently onto the bottom step. The blood would be gone the next morning. We need to do something, Frank. I looked back just in time to see them carrying Casey back towards the door to his room. The door to his room. This was the moment I was dreading the most. Everything that had happened beforehand paled in comparison to our last night in the house. 
I briefly considered going back downstairs and lighting the whole place up now, but decided against it. I would never escape what this house had done to me if I didn't confront what had happened that night in Casey's room. I was about to reach my hand out and open the door when a noise came from my left. It was a soft sound, like someone trying to walk quietly behind me. It sounded familiar. A moment later, I realized why. Those were the sounds the floorboards made whenever Casey walked down the hallway. My heart leapt to my throat and my hand froze on the knob. I didn't want to turn my head, but I did anyway. The footsteps came to a stop. Farther down, hidden just in the shadows near mom and dad's old room, was a dark figure so tall it nearly brushed the ceiling. Despite this, the voice that came from it floated down the hall from my memory, the last night I ever saw my brother. Margie, I can't sleep. I heard Casey's voice through the open door of my room. Truth be told, I couldn't either. I was lying in bed with my Laura Brannigan cassette in my Walkman, waiting for the morning to come. With self-control blaring in my ears, I worked my way out of bed and across the hall. Casey was lying in bed with the covers pulled up to his chin. Mom and Dad decided that a break from the house was in order. They were going to go on a week-long vacation to a lake across the state, while Casey and I were going to stay with Grandma and Grandpa. I even heard them whispering about moving the previous morning. Casey's suitcase lay against the wall beside his bed, ready to grab and run out the front door at a moment's notice. I sat on the end of his bed. Me neither, Case. He sat up. I don't like this place anymore. When we leave, I don't think I ever want to come back. I didn't want to either, but I didn't tell him that. How would he react if his big sister was scared? Instead, we started talking about all the fun things we'd do at our grandparents' house. Our conversation was interrupted by a sound from the hallway. Casey's eyes widened. We listened closer. It wasn't the low, scraping sound from a few nights ago, but rather quiet footsteps that creaked the board slightly. It's just mom or dad getting up to go to the bathroom. It's only that. Now, what dinner are you most excited for grandma to make? He acted like he hadn't heard me. Can you go see what it is? What if it isn't mom or dad? Just look outside. If it isn't them, shut the door and lock it. I nodded. Mustering up all the courage I could, 
I left the bed and walked over to the door. It's nothing. I'm sure of it. Taking a deep breath, I opened the door. I shut the door. The thing in the hallway with Casey's voice continued to call my name from outside. I locked it behind me and slid down, burying my head in my hands. How could I have been so stupid? All it took was a five-second decision to ruin the rest of my life. The voice sounded much closer this time, like it was right up against the door. Don't worry, Margie. It wasn't your fault. How could you have known? I looked down. Shadowy tendrils, darker than the room I was in, began slipping under the crack in the door. They drummed on the bottom, emitting a hollow sound. When it spoke again, it was no longer Casey. What was it that he called me? The man in the wall? Well... I suppose it's not that far off. The tendrils slipped back under the door, and the silence returned. For a few brief seconds, I thought he had gone away. Then, the voice came from in front of me, in the same room. That's how I got in. You know that. I looked up just in time. up just in time to see Casey standing at the end of the hallway. I dropped my Walkman, sending it crashing to the floor. The singing abruptly cut off from the headphones. He was hidden in the shadows by the spare room, rubbing his eyes. Margie, what are you doing up? He took a few steps backwards and pointed down the stairs. I went downstairs to get some water. My heart beating hard in my chest, I turned around. Casey's door was closed. There was no light emitting from underneath it. Were you in my room? Did something happen? I ran forward. What's going on? I bent down and hugged him, his arms wrapped around me. I don't know. I just want to get out of here. Me too. I looked up and into the spare room door, which was open. I noticed it right away. The dark corner where the face should have been was now empty. Moonlight struck it from the window, showing nothing. 
It clicked as I felt the fingernails dig into my shoulders. Too bad he won't. Before I could cry out, I was being lifted into the air by the massive shadow thing that had been masquerading as my brother. I stared into their room a few doors down. They didn't even stir. They continued to lay in bed, fast asleep. From down the hallway, I heard Casey scream. The shadow cackled before throwing me to the floor. I felt something crack painfully. The shadow disappeared suddenly into the darkness. I got to my feet as fast as I could. As I made my way back, I realized something was wrong. The hallway seemed to stretch in front of me like taffy. No matter how hard I ran or how much I called, Casey's door wasn't getting any closer. There were no sounds from mom and dad's room either. I began sobbing, staring at the walls as they failed to move. As if it had been waiting, the end of the hallway shot towards me and I stumbled, scraping my knees on the wood and falling. I looked up. Casey's door was wide open. On the wall beside his bed, the abstract face was pushing hard against it, its outline forming like the drywall was made of cloth. One of Casey's legs was caught in its mouth. I ran forward and grabbed his arm, tugging as hard as I could. He cried out in pain as his other leg was gobbled up by the thing's mouth. No matter how much I tried, I couldn't get him to budge an inch. Tears were streaming down my face as I looked up at him. As his waist sunk into the thing's mouth, I saw the light leave his eyes. They glazed over and his hands became clammy. It was up to his chest now. I gave one final tug before my hand slipped out of his and I fell backwards, off the bed and onto the floor. The face quickly retreated into the wall with the rest of my brother. It smoothed over like it had never been there at all. There was a sudden burst of energy and the window exploded in a shower of glass. I finally heard the footsteps down the hallway as mom and dad appeared in the doorframe. Margaret! What on earth are you doing? Dad tugged at the sheets of the bed. Where is your brother? Where is he? I could only cry and look up at the spot on the wall where the face was grinning at me. was grinning at me. I jumped to my feet and wrenched on the door handle, but it wouldn't open. I realized a second too late that I had forgotten to unlock it before I felt my leg go numb. I fell to the floor and was being dragged across the room. 
The face's mouth had distended, almost like a muzzle, to reach across the room and snatch my leg. I didn't feel pain, only a crushing numbness. I batted weakly at the mouth, trying to get it to let go, but it was doing no good. I thought of it all. The police. Mom and Dad screaming at each other, then at me. The broken window. The excuse that someone must have broken in and kidnapped Casey. The look in Mom's eye when she thought I was mentally blocking a description of the suspect. The years of not being loved, only tolerated. How hard Dad tried to be there for me, only to never quite get over Casey's disappearance. The depression. The nightmares. The insulation and dry old boards scraped across my other leg as it was sucked in as well. I could feel my pants soaking with blood. The thing spoke like it didn't have its mouth full. I'm glad you decided to come back. I was getting lonely again. I frantically scanned the room for something, anything to grab and stop this thing, but I could see nothing. I began trying to hit the mouth again. It was pulling me back slowly, savoring every moment of my panic. Why are you fighting it? Don't you want to be with your brother again? I heard a voice, echoey and distant coming from some place deep in the throat. It didn't sound like Casey, more like a half-formed parody of what his voice had sounded like. My hand brushed against my pocket, and I felt it. The book of matches I was going to use to light all the jerry cans. I looked at the face closer seemed to be formed of flaking drywall and old wood. All of it, bone dry. I was three quarters across the room when I finally spoke, mustering all the courage I could. There's one problem. What's that? That's not my brother. With one swift motion, I lit as many matches as I could at once and threw them into the mouth. A few bounced off one of the boards, but the others made it in. Time seemed to slow down as the flaming tips tumbled over themselves before landing on a pocket of insulation. Like it had been doused in gasoline, it erupted into flames immediately. The thing howled in pain as I slid out of its mouth, landing on the floor was rapidly going up in flames, each successive moment finding another dry, aged piece of woodwork to catch. Most of the wall was already covered. I managed to get the door unlocked and hobble out, hearing the thing scream behind me. My legs still burned from being shredded by the wood. I hurried past all the spots that had terrorized me all those years ago. The hallway that never ended. The darkness of the spare room the top of the stairs. As I ran down them, the statue at the bottom began to shake violently. 
It glowed, turning red hot before suddenly erupting with flames that came from inside it. In the living room, the curtains caught fire as well. I barely escaped the gas I had already doused the stairs and front hall with as they went up. The can I had on the steps burst. I ran to my car and threw open the door. Grabbing the remaining jerry cans and running back towards the house. I aimed them at the open windows, throwing them when there was half the gas left inside. I could hear them explode as they broke through. Some mist bouncing off and landing on the lawn, which quickly began to go up as well. The front door of the house was wide open. Something was coming down the stairs, black as pitch despite the fact it was a flame. Some long tendril that might be an arm extended out towards me. But at that moment, one of the cans I had thrown into the hallway exploded, showering the whole foyer with more flames. The outside walls were already covered in licks of fire. The figure collapsed to the floor and disappeared into the inferno. Jumping in the car, I started the engine and began gunning it down the driveway. I drove down the winding path past the trees that didn't seem so scary anymore. I stopped only once, right at the turnoff to go back to the road. I turned around. I could see the blaze through the trees and heard a large crash as the roof caved in. The night sky was alive with the oranges and yellows of the flames. Before I took the turn, through all the chaos and fire, everything quieted for a moment. A voice, echoey and distant, but familiar, called from somewhere behind me. I love you, Margie. I felt a slight pressure on my right shoulder as if someone was squeezing it. Tears filled my vision, and the pit in my stomach faded away for the first time in a long while. I wiped them away as best I could. Good night, Casey. Thank you for joining us on our journey down the Lost Highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mikalski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. 
Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream tonight. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, 